We didn't get through the Alexandrian school last week, and so this is part two of our study of the Alexandrian school. And I think it's good to take a couple of weeks here because this is a very important period in early church history that has a lot of parallels with where we are today. That's the point of studying history, is to learn from history and to be able to see what the outcome was over the long haul for certain choices and actions that were made with good intentions at the time, but you remember that good intentions have unintended consequences. It's always important to learn, and that's the benefit of having this 2,000 years of church history that we live in, that the first Christians in the early centuries didn't have. They didn't have 2,000 years of church history to look at and learn from and see, well, what happens if we do this, or what happens if we do this, and then they made those mistakes, but we can learn from their mistakes. And while most people don't learn anything from history, God's people can learn from history. And that's why God has put so much history inside the Bible so that we learn from Israel's mistakes, both in the Old Testament and in the time of Christ. And then we also learn from the church's mistakes as we have all of this church history. And as we go back and look and evaluate the decisions of these early church teachers, especially speaking about the Alexandrian school, it's important for us to be gracious to these men and to recognize that they didn't have everything that we have. That men like Origen of Alexandria, they didn't have the resources that have been accumulated for us in our time, not only the knowledge of history, but also just the advance of doctrine. They were still working through a lot of the basic doctrines of the New Testament. They were facing certain heresies, and they were facing those heresies with courage and with boldness and with love for God and love for his word. But other areas where they were immature, undeveloped. And so rather than idolizing the early church fathers, we should recognize that they're really not the fathers of the church in one sense, but they are the infants of the church. They're just getting started in growing, and, and we are the more mature church, or at least we should be. Unfortunately, you look around and you see that the church in our time is making all the same mistakes that they made back then, and most people aren't learning anything from the history of the church, and, and that's tragic, and we want to try to avoid that and try to pass on the lessons of history as much as we can. So that's why we're here studying the Alexandrian school for a second week. Very important, very relevant part of church history. And so before we dig into the history, I'd, I'd like you to open your Bibles once again back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We read from 1 Corinthians last week, and I want to put it in front of you again because it's so foundational to understanding how we as Christians are supposed to interact with the wisdom of our age. And we see a great example in the Apostle Paul that we want to emulate. And he sets an example that I think the Alexandrian school should have learned better from, and they failed to, and that led to a lot of problems, not only in Origen's theology, but then in his followers and in really the whole history of the interpretation of the Bible from Origen's time until the Reformation. See, here's the thing. is Origen's going to set up a methodology, a hermeneutic of interpreting the Bible that is going to deeply impact the church from the second century of the church when he lived all the way up to the time of the Reformation when some of these bad tendencies are finally reversed after they've grown to their full blossom in their ugliness. You mishandle scripture and bad things are going to result 
not only in the short run, but even worse in the long run. And so here, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to read the first five verses to refresh our memories about how Jerusalem is supposed to interact with Athens as we use those cities to illustrate the worldly wisdom versus God's word. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth, educated city, well-to-do, prosperous. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. There's our word plausible. Remember how that became such an important word in our study of the Gnostics. They were very plausible with their words of wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So we must be careful that we do not adopt the wisdom of men to try to bolster our courage and confidence in proclaiming Jesus Christ. Because if we do so, if we take the wisdom of this age, if we take the knowledge of science and try to use that and conform the message to that, what we end up doing is putting people's faith not in God, but in the wisdom of men. And we must be very careful along those lines. Now, last week we began looking at the Alexandrian school of Christian teaching with Clement of Alexandria. And we saw in Clement a good example of a man who was faithful to scriptural teaching and the spirit of Christ while interacting in an intellectual environment Clement may not have been perfect. He might have had some flaws, and some of those flaws might have been passed on to origin and become greater. But by and large, we appreciated the ministry and the work and the writings of Clement. Now, origin is a very mixed bag. There's things about origin that I really admire, and I think he's great. Other times where he's really a mess and makes you scratch your head and wonder how could any Christian believe and teach these things. And, you know, that's not uncommon. Origen is very similar to many leaders of the church in the 20th century who I look at, and in some respects I say, well, look at their courage, look at their love for Christ, look at how many they've led to the Lord Jesus Christ in their preaching or their evangelism and all of that. But then I look at other areas of their life and I see you know, them compromising with the world on Christian doctrine and Christian teaching and doing great damage to the church over the long run. And so there are those men who have great short-term success in ministry and have a genuine love for the Lord, but whose flaws cause long-term problems for the church. You might think of David in this regard in the Old Testament. What an awesome example of faith David is, especially as a young man. And yet you look at David's flaw that he's marrying many women and then takes another man's wife and has the husband killed by the sword in battle, and you recognize that this had long-term consequences for the people of Israel that were very negative. And that's why the judgment that came upon David, that the sword shall never depart from your house, was such a devastating judgment because of his sin, his inconsistency. And whether it's a sexual sin like David, or whether it is a sin of compromise on doctrine like Solomon who had many wives also, and who had then built these temples for these other wives, that he had introduced this idolatry, this foothold for 
idols into his nation, that therefore God split the nation and took away the northern part from the southern part, and that had devastating effects on the life of Israel. Civil wars, the weakness of the nation to stand up against its opponents and adversaries outside of the nation. And so we can see that people can be a very mixed bag. Solomon can write scripture and you can love what he writes. And yet at the same time, he messes up Israel for hundreds of years after him. And that's the way it is with some of these early church leaders who have wonderful qualities and yet we want to learn from their mistakes that had profound consequences for hundreds of years. And Origen is that figure above all. He's the best of men and the worst of men at the same time. Now, you'll note that I have a handout there on the music stand. If you just came in and you didn't get a handout there in the back, you can grab one for your group. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time on the handout this week. And you'll notice that on one side I gave you the notes, uh, the writing from Clement that we read together last week, one of my favorite parts of Clement's writings, just so you can have that for your own personal edification. You can read it and review it at home. Then on the other side, I have a document called the Muratorian Canon. And I want to tell you a little bit about the Muratorian Canon, because I think this is a good place in our lectures to do so. I don't want to spend a whole week on the canon of Scripture, but I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about the development and understanding in the early church of which books were Holy Scripture and which books were not Holy Scripture. And here, the most important thing to keep in mind is that the church did not make books by declaration the Word of God. The church recognizes what is and what is not the Word of God. And it took time for the early church to come to a consensus on recognizing what is the Word of God in these apostolic writings and what is not the Word of God in this period of apostolic writing. And so the Muratorian Canon, I've given it to you in full because it's just a fragment. We don't have the whole thing. We just have a fragment, and I'll show you a picture here of, of what we have. And so this is part of the Muratorian fragment, lines 32 to 85. And the fragment was discovered in the Ambrosian Library in Milan by Father Ludovico Antonio Moratori. So he was a very prominent Italian historian in his time, and he published the Moratorian Canon in 1740. It is a publishing of a 7th century Latin manuscript. So this particular manuscript was copied written down in the 7th century, but it is a translation of a much earlier document that probably goes back to the middle part of the 1st century, maybe the late middle part of the, excuse me, the 2nd century of the church. So maybe 150 to 170, if my memory serves me right. So it's a translation into Latin from the Greek. The document was originally written in Greek around 170 A.D., we have this Latin translation of it that was copied in the 7th century. And the Latin translation is pretty poor. Either the translator didn't understand Greek, which is probably more likely. He was probably pretty weak in Greek and was translating it over into Latin and didn't do a great job. But even with a poor translation, this is still an important document for understanding the early church view of the canon, or at least one part of the early church's view. Because, again, you're going to find some diversity on this subject, and you'll pick that up as we read through it. So let me read for you the Muratorian canon and make a few comments. 
And it just breaks in talking about the gospel of Mark, the second gospel. And so we just get the last line about what he said about the gospel of Mark, which is, those things at which he was present, he placed thus. He's probably talking about Peter reporting to Mark, and then the things that Peter was present at, uh, he reports, and that's how Mark writes it down. The third book of the gospel, that according to Luke, the well-known physician, Luke wrote it in his own name, in order, after the ascension of Christ, and when Paul had associated Luke with himself as one studious of right. Nor did he himself see the Lord in the flesh, and he, according as he was able, so Luke, he wasn't one of the disciples who was with Jesus during his time on earth, but he, according as he was able to accomplish it, began his narrative with the nativity of John, the birth of John the Baptist. The fourth gospel is that of John, one of the disciples. When his fellow disciples and bishops entreated him, he said, Fast ye now with me for the space of three days, and let us recount to each other whatever may be revealed to each of us. On the same night it was revealed to Andrew, one of the apostles, that John should narrate all things in his own name as they called them to mind. And hence, although different points are taught us in the several books of the Gospels, There is no difference as regards the faith of believers, inasmuch as in all of them all things are related under one imperial spirit, which concern the Lord's nativity, his passion, his resurrection, his conversation with his disciples, and his twofold advent. The first in the humiliation of rejection, which is now past, and the second in the glory of royal power, which is yet in the future. What marvel is it then that John brings forward these several things so constantly in his epistles, also saying in his own person, what we have seen with our eyes and heard with our ears and our hands have handled, that have we written. For thus he professes himself to be not only the eyewitness, but also the hearer. And besides that, the historian of all the wondrous facts concerning the Lord in their order. So here, He mentions four Gospels. We don't have what he says about Matthew and Mark, but he calls Luke the third and he calls John the fourth. And so we're pretty reasonably confident that we have a very early document here testifying to the fact that there's these four Gospels. And of course, we have that in other sources early in church history as well. And then he's going to move on to the book of Acts and then talk about the letters. So let's see what he says about Acts in the second section. Moreover, the Acts of the Apostles are comprised by Luke in one book and addressed to the most excellent Theophilus, because these different events took place when he was present himself. So Luke was at a lot of the stuff that happens in the book of Acts. And he shows this clearly. For example, that the principle on which he wrote was to give only what fell under his own notice. You know, I always get I-E and E-G confused. So I-E is not, for example, I I misread that. I-E is that is to say. E.G. is for example. So I.E. means that is to say. That is to say that the principle on which he wrote was to give only what fell under his own notice by the omission of the passion of Peter and also of the journey of Paul when he went from the city Rome to Spain. So Luke wasn't there for Peter dying. That's what he means by the passion of Peter. And Luke wasn't there for when Paul journeyed to Spain. And so that's why those things are not recounted in the book. Now, I would say it's more likely that he didn't include those things in the book because he wrote the book before those things happened. And maybe Luke went with Paul to Spain. We don't know who his traveling companions were. But I'd probably disagree with this early church writer on that point. But he was closer to the events than me, so you can believe him if you want. Then paragraph three, as to the epistles of Paul, again, so now he's going to talk about Paul's letters, 
To those who will understand the matter, they indicate of themselves what they are and from what place or with what object they were directed. That is, the letters themselves tell you who he wrote them to and, and all that. He wrote, first of all, and at considerable length, to the Corinthians to check the schism of heresy. And then he wrote to the Galatians to forbid circumcision. Interesting how he summarizes the message of Galatians as forbidding circumcision. He doesn't forbid circumcision. He just says that circumcision can't save you and should not be a part of the gospel message. Could be stated more clearly. And then to the Romans on the rule of the Old Testament scriptures and also to show them that Christ is the first object in these, which it is needful for us to discuss severally as the blessed apostle Paul, following the rule of his predecessor John, writes to no more than seven churches by name. So here the Moratorian fragment, is, the author of it, is going to compare the seven churches that Paul wrote to the seven churches that John wrote. And he says that because they both wrote to seven churches, that is representative of the fact that they were writing these letters to all Christians in all places because seven is the number of symbolic completion. Now, if you actually you know, count up the number of different churches that Paul wrote to in his letters, you, you do come up with seven, interestingly. And that, I don't know if you've heard that before or thought about that, but an interesting point here that he makes. Now, I also want to comment on his summary of the letter of Paul to the Romans, since we just finished studying Romans together. It's, it's uh, of particular interest to us. And he says that Romans was written on the rule of the Old Testament scriptures. And this was a point that I brought out as we were teaching Romans, is that over and over again, Paul is going to refer to the Old Testament, that there's more references to the Old Testament in Romans than in all of Paul's other letters combined. And so the relationship of the New Covenant to the Old Covenant is one of the major themes. I don't know if it's the major theme, but it is one of the major themes of Paul's letter to the Romans. I'm glad he brings that out here. And he says to show them that Christ is the first object in these. And this was, of course, very important in the early church in light of the Gnostics who were trying to teach that the God of the Old Testament was not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and they were trying to throw out the Old Testament. Well, how important Paul's letter to the Romans became where he showed them the connection between the Old Testament scriptures and Christ. And I don't know how, no matter how much you edit the book of Romans, as Marcion liked to do, how you could get rid of that clear teaching that is the major underlying current of the book. All right, so let's take a look at the seven churches here that he's going to point out. First to the Corinthians, second to the Ephesians, third to the Philippians, fourth to the Colossians, fifth to the Galatians, sixth to the Thessalonians, and seventh to the Romans. Now, of course, we have two letters to the Corinthians and two letters to the Thessalonians, but still, there's seven different churches they are written to. And that's what he says in the next sentence, so I should stop, stop talking and just let him talk. By this sevenfold writing... He shows that there is one church spread abroad through the whole world. And John, too, indeed, in the Apocalypse, though he writes only to seven churches, yet addresses all, he wrote besides these, one to Philemon, one to Titus, and two to Timothy. So here's an early canon that includes what we call the pastoral epistles of Paul, Titus and Timothy, that's important because a lot of modern-day scholars want to try to say that the pastoral epistles were not written by Paul, unbelieving scholars, but they were just pseudepigrapha, written in Paul's name, but they were written later by people who were dealing with the Gnostic heresy. But that is not the case, and the early church has this right. Paul did write the pastoral epistles as well as the letter to Philemon. In simple personal affection and love indeed, 
but yet these are hallowed in the esteem of the Catholic Church, the universal church. And in the regulation of ecclesiastical discipline, so we want to understand how the church is supposed to function. The pastoral epistles are very useful for that. There's a lot of good ecclesiology in the pastoral epistles, teaching on church order. There are also in circulation, okay, this is now interesting, so we've, we've covered all the ones that are in our Bibles, but he says, there are also in circulation one to the Laodiceans, letter of Paul to the Laodiceans, and another to the Alexandrians, forged under the name of Paul. So he says, these letters are out there, but Paul didn't write them. This Laodicean letter, it's, it's forged. And they're addressed against the heresy of Marcion. So were there some letters that were supposedly written by Paul that were written later and were attacking the Gnostics? Yes, there were. Not Titus and Timothy, but this letter to the Laodiceans and the Alexandrians, some well-meaning Christian decided, well, I'll just write in Paul's name against the heretics and that'll be helpful for the church. And a lot of people in the church fell for it. But good intentions have unintended consequences and good intentions are not enough and we should never lie in the cause of Christ. And addressed against the heresy of Marcion. And there are also several others which cannot be received into the Catholic Church for it is not suitable for gall to be mingled with honey. Gall is bitter, honey is sweet, scripture is honey, these forgeries are gall. Then he goes on and talks about the general epistles, the Catholic epistles, as they are sometimes called. The epistle of Jude, indeed, and two belonging to the above named John, bearing the name of John, are reckoned among the Catholic epistles. Now notice he only has two letters of John, he doesn't have the third John in there that we have in our Bibles. And the book of wisdom, written by the friends of Solomon in his honor, so they wanted to include the wisdom of Solomon in this canon. We receive also the Apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation, and that of Peter, the Apocalypse of Peter, which is not in the canon, but he received it, though some amongst us will not have this latter read in the church. So he says, we accept the Apocalypse of Peter, but some people, some Christians, don't accept the Apocalypse of Peter. And so the, the Apocalypse of Peter was one that was discussed and debated and ultimately rejected. If you want to know more about the Apocalypse of Peter, it's an interesting book. It is a journey into heaven and hell, and uh, it shows you what heaven and hell is like. And supposedly written by Peter, he's given this revelation of heaven and hell, kind of like Dante's Inferno and Dante's Paradiso, for those of you that are in my History of Western Civilization class. Then he talks about the shepherd of Hermos, which he calls the pastor. The pastor, which means shepherd, moreover, did Hermos write very recently in our times. So he says this is not an apostolic book. This was written very recently in the city of Rome, while his brother Bishop Pius sat in the chair of the Church of Rome, and therefore it also ought to be read. But it cannot be made public in the church to the people, nor placed among the prophets, as their number is complete, nor among the apostles to the end of time. So he's saying, we like the Shepherd of Hermas, we think it's a good book, but we're not going to put it in our Bible. I don't think the Shepherd of Hermas is a good book, so I disagree with him on that as well, although I agree that it's not to be put into the Bible. <laughs> Of the writings of Arsinus, called also Valentinus, remember how we talked about Valentinus, he was one of the Gnostic heretics, or of Miltiades, apparently another Gnostic heretic and we haven't talked about, we receive nothing at all. Those are rejected too who wrote the new book of Psalms from Arsian, together with Basilides and the founder of the Asian Cataphrygians. And so that's the end of the Muratorian fragment. Very interesting 
early church document. And you can you know, make a list of the books that he includes and compare it with the books that are in our Bible. It'll give you some historical knowledge of how the discussion and debate was occurring in one part of the church at that time, which we wouldn't know about if we hadn't discovered this fragment. All right, so with the time left, we've got to get into Origen and his writings. And so I'd like to read for you some of Origen's writings and then discuss and interact with them and show you what we can learn from them in our time and how people are making the same mistakes that Origen made then now as well. Now, I'm going to mostly focus our time on his book that is on first principles, De Principis, or however you pronounce the Latin of that title. And in his preface, he talks about what are the doctrines that the whole church agrees on that I agree with and that I'm not going to contradict in my writings. Now, Origen is a creative thinker, and I do appreciate creative thinkers. And what Origen is trying to do in his preface here is he's trying to set up the minimum amount, the boundaries of what the Christian faith is. This is basically what you have to believe in order to be orthodox in the view of the early church. And it could be compared in our time to what some have called the mere Christianity movement. The mere Christianity movement gets its name from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, where C.S. Lewis is trying to find what is the basic core of Christianity that all Christians can agree on, and then these other things are kind of secondary doctrines that are free to be discussed and we can disagree on and still call each other brother. And that's kind of the idea there in Mere Christianity. And, and so there's been a movement that's formed along these lines because C.S. Lewis has been one of the most influential writers in Christianity in the 20th century, where people, they want to try to just define the basic minimum of what do you have to believe in order to be a Christian. In order to be a Christian, you have to have this, this, and this, and as long as you've got that, then you're saved and you're going to heaven and we're brothers and we can disagree on everything else. Now, is that a good exercise to undertake? Yes, it is a good exercise to think about what does someone have to believe in order to be a Christian, although I like to frame it this way. It's not so much what you have to believe in order to be a Christian. It's more of who you have to believe in order to be a Christian. Because our faith is not in a what. Our faith is in a who. And you have to know Jesus Christ and you have to know him truly. And the what is just helping you to understand the who. And and I'd just like to make that clarification just so that we know that it's not by assenting to a certain statement of faith that you're saved, but it's by a personal faith in the God who saves that saves. But who is that God? What is he like? That's where the what comes in, right? So I'm going to read for you Origen's concept of what was the basic of Christianity, what was mere Christianity as far as he understood it in his time, and this is what he writes in the opening of his work on first principles. He says, Now it ought to be known that the holy apostles, in preaching the faith of Christ, delivered themselves with the utmost clearness on certain points. So the Bible is very clear on certain points. The apostles made these things clear, which they believed to be necessary to everyone, even to those who seemed somewhat dull in the investigation of divine knowledge. So even if you're not the quickest wit in the world, these are things that you have to be able to understand in order to be saved, is what he's saying. The Bible is very clear on this. The apostles are very clear on this. 
leaving, however, the grounds of their statements to be examined into by those who should deserve the excellent gifts of the Spirit. So there's some things in the apostolic writing which are left to be discovered and discerned by those who have excellent gifts of the Spirit, for those who are most sharp and most keen in understanding spiritual things. And, of course, Origen is pretty sharp and pretty keen, and so he's going to think that he has some insights that not every Christian would be able to discern from the writings of the Apostles. And who especially, by means of the Holy Spirit himself, should obtain the gift of language, of wisdom, and of knowledge, while on other subjects they merely stated the fact that things were so, keeping silence as to the manner or origin of their existence. So some things God doesn't fully explain, he just tells us what it is, and then it's left to us to try to to kind of figure out how or why what God has made clear is the way it should. And so he says, for those who should be lovers of wisdom, that gives us a subject of exercise on which to display the fruit of our talents. And so for those who have this insight, they're able to discover these things and bring them out that are not as plain and obvious, those points that everyone needs to be able to understand in order to be saved. Those persons, I mean, who should prepare themselves to be fit and worthy receivers of wisdom. Now, wisdom is basically their word for science, right? In our time, we don't talk about philosophy and wisdom. We talk about science. You've got to trust the science, look to the science, and, and all that. Well, in their day, they used the word wisdom. And in fact, up until quite recently, the Western world still used the word wisdom to describe these things as well. And that's why science, until I think like the 18th century, was called natural philosophy, the philosophy of nature, the wisdom, the study of wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom as regards to the natural world, the natural creation. But at some point in there, they changed over from talking about the philosophy of nature to science. So when he's using the word wisdom, you can kind of translate that into our time, into the the scientific knowledge of our age, right? And then he goes on and says this, the particular points clearly delivered in the teaching of the apostles are as follows. So what are the points that are very clear that everyone can understand whether or not you are able to understand Greek and Hebrew and and to to interact with all of this scholarly stuff going on. The very simple stuff in Scripture that is laid out there for all of us, the cookies on the bottom shelf, as some would say, says this, First, that there is one God who created and arranged all things and who then, when nothing existed, called all things into being. And this is, of course, against the Gnostics. The Gnostics didn't teach this. The Gnostics taught that it was some lesser emanation who created the physical world, and that's why it's so messed up. And he says, no, there's one God who created all things. So he's not falling into the error of the Gnostics, and he's orthodox on these points, right? God from the first creation and foundation of the world, the God of all just men, Adam, Abel, Seth, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve patriarchs, Moses, and the prophets, Again, he's calling these righteous men against the Gnostics. And there were some Gnostic sects, you remember, that were so evil that they took every person who was evil in the Bible and said these were actually the righteous men. Sodom and Gomorrah, they were the righteous ones. And the evil God rained down fire on them. And Cain, he was actually the righteous one. And they called themselves the Cainites because they turned everything upside down. And of course, you know, there's wicked people in the world who like to do that today. They like to turn everything upside down and say, Satan's a good guy. God's a bad guy. And all the bad people are good. And all the good people are bad. Well, that was going on then. And so he has to list the righteous men to not only uphold the authority of the Old Testament, but also to refute these people who like to call evil good and good evil. 
And he goes on and talks about the God who created the world as the one who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that this good God gave the law and the prophets and the gospels, being also the God of the apostles and of the Old and New Testaments. And since we've studied Gnosticism, now you know why he's making these points, right? Secondly, that Jesus Christ himself, so he starts with God the Father, God the Creator. Secondly, just like our doctrinal statements, right? When we're laying out our doctrinal statement, this is what we believe, this is what you need to believe in order to come to our church. He's got God the Father, and then he's got God the Son. Jesus Christ himself, who came into the world, was born of the Father before all creatures. Born of the Father before all creatures. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that if time permits the eternal generation of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of debate on that in the church today as well. But I wouldn't necessarily say it the way that Origen just said it. I think I could be prone to misunderstanding. That after he had been the servant of the Father in the creation of all things, for by him all things were made, he in the last times, these times, divesting himself of his glory, became a man and was incarnate, although God, and while made a man, remained the God which he was that he assumed a body like to our own, differing in this respect only, that it was born of a virgin and of the Holy Spirit, that this Jesus Christ was truly born and did truly suffer and did not endure this death common to man in appearance only, like the Gnostics taught, that he just appeared to die or that he didn't die or they thought they were crucifying him but they crucified someone else, but he did truly die. And he's very clear on that point that he did truly rise from the dead, and that after his resurrection he conversed with his disciples and was taken up into heaven. Then thirdly, all right, so we talked about the Father, the Son, thirdly, the apostles related that the Holy Spirit was associated in honor and dignity with the Father and the Son. But in his case, it is not clearly distinguished, so he says there's a little bit of room for debate and discussion when it comes to the person of the Holy Spirit. He says the apostles have not clearly distinguished whether he is to be regarded as born or innate, or also as a son of God or not. In what way do we think of the Holy Spirit proceeding from God the Father and God the Son? And this becomes a subject of the Nicene Creed and other creeds where we talk about the Son has been eternally generated by the Father and that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And then, of course, later in church history, there's a huge split between the East and the West over this procession of the Holy Spirit with what is called the Filioque Clause. And that is, and the Son. So the Western Church wanted to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Eastern Church didn't want to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son, just from the Father. And so they used that as an excuse for splitting from one another, when I think really the real reason for their split was more political, that they both wanted to have power and uh, authority over the church. So all that is just a preview of future church history regarding the person of the Holy Spirit. So then he... uh, talks about how the Spirit is inspired. This Spirit inspired each one of the saints, whether prophets or apostles, and that there was not one Spirit in the men of the old dispensation and another in those who were inspired at the advent of Christ is most clearly taught throughout the churches. The churches all agree the same Holy Spirit that inspired the Old Testament prophets is the same Holy Spirit who inspired the New Testament apostles. So then he goes on and he says, after these points... Also, the apostolic teaching is that the soul 
having a substance and life of its own, shall, after its departure from the world, be rewarded according to its deserts, being destined to obtain either an inheritance of eternal life and blessedness, if its actions shall have procured this for it, or be delivered up to eternal fire and punishments, if the guilt of its crimes shall have brought it down to this. And also, that there is to be a time of resurrection from the dead, when this body which is now sown in corruption shall rise in incorruption, and that which is sown in dishonor shall rise in glory. This also is clearly defined in the teaching of the church that every rational soul is possessed of free will and volition. All right, let's stop there for a moment. Before we talk about free will, which is an interesting subject, we're going to talk about the immortality of the soul, that the soul, after the body dies, goes to God for judgment. And when he says that you either go to a place of paradise if your works deserve it, or a place of punishment if your works deserve it, we're going to be generous to Origen and assume that he means that nobody by their own works actually deserves glory, but that by our works he agrees with Paul that everybody deserves judgment. And Paul himself lays out this principle in Romans. And it's how you read Romans chapter 2 is also interesting on those points. But as we go through, you're going to see that he does not, well, yeah, he does. With his view of free will, he does get a little confused on the, the nature of salvation and how we attain glory, and that'll become more clear. So I'm trying to be generous to the reading of what happens to the soul after death here, but uh, I'm reminded that I can't be too generous because he does make a lot of mistakes here. And that does tie in with his view of free will. And so he says that, The clearly defined teaching of the church is that every soul is possessed of free will and volition. And so then you have to say, well, what do you mean by that? And his idea of free will and volition might not be the same idea as others, and it comes to be a thorny discussion. And I love to talk about it, but we only have so much time, so we'll see what we get to. So he goes on and talks about free will and how we strive. Let Let me read it. So when he's talking about how we have free will and volition, he says that the soul has a struggle to maintain with the devil and his angels and opposing influences because they strive to burden it with sins. But if we live rightly and wisely, we should endeavor to shake ourselves free of a burden of that kind from which it follows also that we understand ourselves not to be subject to necessity as to be compelled by all means, even against our will, to do either good or evil. So here's the normal objection to predestination, is that then it goes against free will and you're being forced against your will to do something that you don't want to do. And that's not the teaching of Calvinism, that's not the teaching of Augustine, that's not the teaching of the Apostle Paul. It's that effectual grace comes into your life, you're not being compelled against your will to do anything, but God has changed your will so that now, of your free will, if I want to use their terminology, you are choosing to follow and believe in Christ, but it's only because God has given you the will to do so. And there is no acting against your will. We never act against our will. We always act according to our will. But the will is bound in sin until God gives us a new heart in Christ Jesus that is able to respond. And, and so I think he misunderstands our position in how he argues his position here. He says, For if we are our own masters, some influences perhaps may impel us to sin, and others help us to salvation. We are not forced, however, by any necessity either to act rightly or wrongly. 
which those persons think is the case, who say that the courses and movements of the stars are the cause of human actions. So here he's comparing predestination to those who believe that astrology determines human actions and it's all destiny, it's all fate. So he's saying, no, it's not fate, it's not destiny, it's free will. You you want to be gracious to origin. I, I think many people still make the same mistake. It's an insufficient understanding of how the will works and how God works upon the will. Anyway, we'll leave that for now. Number six, he says, Regarding the devil and his angels and the opposing influences, the teaching of the church has laid down that these things exist as real beings. But what they are or how they exist, it has not explained with sufficient clearness. So he says, the devil and the angels are real personal beings. The Bible, the apostles, it's clear. That's true. But exactly where they came from and exactly what they are, that's not exactly clear. And I agree. The Bible's not exactly clear on where the devil and his angels actually all came from. Is there some variety among them? Were they all created at the same time for the same purpose in the same way? Are there different levels? All of that, it's a little murky. There's some room for thought on this subject. This opinion, however, is held by most, that the devil was an angel, and then having become an apostate, he induced as many of the angels as possible to fall away with himself. And these, up to the present time, are called his angels, that is, fallen angels. And so we're good. We agree with Origen on his angelology. And then point number seven, this is also a part of the church's teaching, that the world was made and took its beginning at a certain time and is to be destroyed on account of its wickedness. So the church teaches that the physical world is not eternal, that it came into being at a certain time, and that it's going to be destroyed at a certain time. And this is contrary to some of the Greek philosophy of the day, where some people thought that the universe was eternal. But the church teaches, no, it was made and it has an end. But, Origen says, and I've got this highlighted, what existed before this world or what will exist after it, has not become certainly known to the many, for there is no clear statement regarding it in the teaching of the church. So, whatever existed before the world, or whatever exists after this world, he says, that's not exactly clear, and therefore I've got some room to work in that lack of clarity with my own ideas. And he comes up with some interesting, some doozies. And then number eight. And this is about his interpretation of Scripture, which is really the, the main problem I have with Origen, among, well, probably the second main problem. Free will and his understanding of interpreting Scriptures, his hermeneutics, are, are really uh, the two areas where we would have most vehement dialogue. And then he says, finally, that the Scriptures were written by the Spirit of God and have a meaning not such only as is apparent at first sight, but also another which escapes the notice of most. For those words which are written in the forms of certain mysteries and the images of divine things, respecting which there is one opinion throughout the whole church that the whole law is indeed spiritual, but that the spiritual meaning which the law conveys is not known to all, but to those only on whom the grace of the Holy Spirit is bestowed in the word of wisdom and knowledge. So here, this is a very dangerous idea, that only certain people have the insight to be able to see the spiritual meaning of the text of Scripture. He's not denying the plain meaning of Scripture, and so we can give him some credit there. 
But he's adding on another layer of meaning that he thinks people like him have the spiritual wisdom and insight to see. And this becomes the allegorization of Scripture. And you can do an interesting study on the history of interpretation of the Bible and how allegorizing the Bible became a method that Origen somewhat pioneers and becomes a dominant way of reading and interpreting the Bible, taking it out of the hands of the common people and putting it into the hands of scholars. And so here you have the first major step of saying, well, you common people, you can understand you know, the basic level of Scripture, but you really need us, the church teachers, the doctors of the church, to explain to you the spiritual, mysterious, hidden meaning of Scripture. And then they use this authority that is vested in the spiritual teachers of the church to justify all kinds of doctrines that are not in the Bible and to conform a lot of biblical teaching to worldly thought. And this has terrible fruit over the course of centuries and really is what leads the church into shipwreck as they lose the authority of Scripture because of this spiritualizing of it, this allegorizing of it, rather than just taking the plain meaning of the text. It's a complex subject when it comes to the proper interpretation of Scripture, but I'm trying to, to make it simple here in explaining the problem of origin and what the Reformers then corrected and got right. Also with uh, soteriology and the nature of the will, the Reformers were much better on that than Origen. And uh, we thank Luther and Calvin and other men who understood what the Scripture taught about the human will and sin and God's salvation. All right. Well, we've only got 10 minutes left, and so I have to choose wisely what we're going to focus on here. He's got a great paragraph on the eternal generation of the Son, and I would love to talk more about that subject with you, but I'm going to skip it for time's sake. If you're interested in the controversy between the eternal sonship of Christ versus the, I don't know what the correct terminology is, well, anyway, if you're interested in that subject, talk with me. I'd love to, to talk on that subject. Now, one of Origen's huge mistakes that really is a glaring error is that he ends up teaching universalism, or at least proposing universalism. And universalism means that, that everyone's going to get saved. That even if you don't get saved in this life, eventually God's going to work so that everyone finally gets saved. And this is what he writes on the subject. He says, These subjects, indeed, are treated by us with great solicitude and caution. So he's saying, okay, I'm going to talk about some things and I'm going to be cautious because I know this is not clearly taught by the apostles, but I want to propose this as something you know, we should discuss and think about. In the manner rather of an investigation and discussion than in that of fixed and certain decision. All right? I'm just floating some ideas. This is how he's doing this. And this is what a lot of false teachers do. The, the, and I'm not calling Origen a false teacher. I think he was a genuine Christian. But this is how a lot of false teaching, a lot of bad teaching gets into the church as people come along and they're just like, I want to float some ideas. You know, and, and think about this. And he says, uh, and I, I do want to be careful. I want to admire someone who, who's making it clear that they're just floating ideas and they're not trying to, to say this is fixed truth that everyone needs to believe. So I, I do commend him on that. That should be done. But he shouldn't be floating such bad ideas. If you're going to float ideas, float good ones. He says this, For we have pointed out in the preceding pages those questions which must be set forth in clear dogmatic propositions, as I think has been done to the best of my ability, when speaking of the Trinity. But on the present occasion, our exercise is to be conducted, as we best may, in the style of a disputation rather than of strict definition. 
So when it comes to the doctrine of universalism, he's saying, I'm, I'm not saying this is like the doctrine of the Trinity, then we've got that fixed. I'm saying this is you know, something where we still have some area to discuss. And he says, The end of the world, then, and the final consummation will take place when everyone shall be subjected to punishment for his sins, a time which God alone knows, when he will bestow on each one what he deserves. We think, indeed, that the goodness of God through his Christ may recall all his creatures to one end, even his enemies being conquered and subdued. For thus says Holy Scripture, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And if the meaning of the prophet's language here be less clear, we may ascertain it from the Apostle Paul, who speaks more openly thus, For Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. But if even that unreserved declaration of the apostle does not sufficiently inform us as what is meant by enemies being placed under his feet, listen to what he says in the following words. For all things must be put under him. What then is this putting under by which all things must be made subject to Christ? I am of opinion that it is this very subjection by which we also wish to be subject to him, by which the apostles also were subject, and all the saints who have been followers of Christ. So he says, I propose that we understand that when the scripture says that all things are going to be submitted to Christ, that means that all are going to get saved. Now, interestingly, some of the discussion that came out of a writing like this was people said, Origen, you're saying that even Satan is going to be saved. And Origins denied that. He said, no, you'd have to be insane to say that Satan was going to get saved. But didn't he just say that the proper way to interpret all things being placed under Christ is to understand that means the subjection that we as Christians have to Christ, a loving subjection? How does that not lead to Satan being saved? And so he walks this back a little bit because he realizes how crazy it sounds and he's not ready to go that far with it. So maybe he's just saying all human beings, all created physical people were going to be universally subject to God after they've been punished for their sins for a certain time or whatever. Of course, that's not the proper way of reading those passages in Psalms or Philippians. Being subject to him means being subject to his judgment. And the Bible makes clear that being subject to his judgment for those who have not been reconciled to Christ through faith before death is eternal punishment, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched, where their smoke rises forever and ever. The Bible is very clear on eternal punishment. But we're going to find over and over again the academy is not comfortable with eternal punishment. You go to every seminary in the world today and count how many of them are zealous for the doctrine of eternal punishment? And you will have a small handful. There might be a number who would say, yes, we believe in eternal punishment. But how many of them are defending it? How many of them are preaching it? How many of them are passionate about the subject and warning people about eternal punishment? Almost none. The academy is not comfortable with the doctrine of eternal punishment. And Origen is in the academy. Right? He is in the school of Alexandria, and he is trying to write in a way so that Christianity is going to be acceptable to the academy. This is the problem. Whenever Christians decide that we are going to adjust the message, there's some wiggle room here. We want to be orthodox, but there's some wiggle room here where we can defend Christianity in a way that's going to make it more palatable to the world around us. 
So free will, no eternal destruction. That sounds much better than predestination and eternal destruction. People don't like those doctrines. Those doctrines really offend people. Well, you know, I'm preaching. So the best example that I can think of in the 20th century for this is Fuller Theological Seminary. Fuller Theological Seminary started off as a very good school. And it stayed a very good school for a very short time. And the reason why Fuller Theological Seminary is such a mess, it's one of the worst schools you could go to today to be trained in the pastoral ministry, is because their stated goal, and it was their real goal, it wasn't just something that was in their heart that they weren't fully aware of, some subconscious desire, but their stated goal was that we want to create a seminary where we can create evangelical scholarship that is respected by the world. If your goal is to be respected by the world, you are doomed in your Christianity. You will never be faithful to Christ if your goal is to be respected in the world. The world will always reject you. The world will always hate faithful Christians. You cannot be friends with the world and friends with Christ. Friendship with the world is hostility towards Christ. And when they set out their goal that we are going to be scholars of such caliber that the world will have to respect us, they destroyed their seminary from its foundation. And you see this in Origen. This is what they should have learned from Origen. Look at a thousand years of church history after Origen when people adopted this mindset and this methodology. Did it lead to a healthy church? It most certainly did not. It led to the excesses of Rome building its palace on the taxation of the poor saints who thought they were buying their loved ones out of purgatory by giving money to an evil pope to build himself a palace. That's what this led to. Now, there's a lot of other things involved with that. It's it's complicated, but at root, it's a, a lack of faithfulness to Christ and it's a desire to be pleasing to men rather than to God. So as smart as Origen was, and he's smarter than me, as godly as Origen was, he was extremely devout, he still had a fatal flaw. And that fatal flaw did cause him ultimately to be rejected by the universal church. His writings and teachings were condemned at the uh, Second Council of Constantinople in 553 AD, hundreds of years later. He was not considered a heretic in his time. And like I said, I don't think he was a heretic. I just think he was a compromised Christian. And it's much like C.S. Lewis. I have hopes to see C.S. Lewis in heaven. But he was a compromised Christian. He's not the person we should be looking to as a spiritual leader. And his book, Mere Christianity, while it has some gems in it, just like Origen has some gems in his writings, it's not a foundation for a healthy church, and his method of apologetics is not the best approach to apologetics. I consider Clive Staples Lewis to be the origin of the 20th century. Brilliant, impactful, flawed. It's complicated. Same way I look at Billy Graham. Brilliant, impactful, flawed. Some of the things that Billy Graham did are going to have really negative effects for hundreds of years on the church. Some of the decisions that he made. Do I still admire him as a Christian? Do I still expect him to see him in heaven? Yes, I do. Can I be critical for the sake of the church, for the health of the church? Not out of envy. I don't care if I'm somebody. I don't care if God makes Billy Graham a great man. 
It's not about any of that. It's about the glory of Christ in his church. It's about the health of the church. It's about love for Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have to be willing to criticize one another and to point out the flaws and the errors for our love for Christ. That's what drives us, our love for Christ that causes us to love the church in the truth. Well, there's a lot more in Origen that makes for very interesting discussions. I really enjoyed reading him. I do appreciate creative thinkers, and I would love to sit down and talk with Origen if he was here in our world today, just like I'd love to sit down with C.S. Lewis if he was still with us today. But we don't get all these opportunities. We just talk to the people that are around us, and we, we do the work that God gives us in gratitude.